Tonight we have a privilege of having with us Dr. Bob Forney, who is seated in the fourth row on my left, next to his mother, Mrs. Forney, and his son, Christopher, who is telling his dad why he will not be in the sanctuary as his father preaches. Are you going to stay in, Christopher? You're not going to go out into the nursery? Oh, Christopher, I told him before the service that I, for some reason, have him nailed as a Christopher. Well, Christopher, you'll always be. Will you answer to Christopher just for me, just as a kindness? Thank you, Scott. Um, About, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, I began to know the name Bob Forney. And I knew it from my brother talking about a Bible study that was hosted in Toledo, Friday night Bible study. Um, Some towns lack reformed churches and have a ministry that keeps alive the commitment to uh, biblical doctrine and uh, Dr. Forney and his wife Deb have been for many years hosting a Bible study in their home. When Mary Lee and I were in Boston at seminary, there was a guy named Alan Emery who was on the board of a number of Christian organizations and uh, he had a house right near where uh, Lydia Carter actually comes from and he had a weekly time of Bible study for the high school people. Well, Dr. Forney's is for older people, although I imagine you've had people in high school there. And uh, as these ministries do, sometimes there are lots of attenders and sometimes it goes down a little bit, but it has been a witness in that community. And I encourage those of you who go out, it might be that you will not find a church that has reform commitments. And if that's true, there's nothing stopping you from having a time in your own homes where you feed the, 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 the sheep and you train them in proper doctrine. Well, anyhow, over the years, my brother went through a number of changes in his church, and now we have the joy of having a church where it's uh, two weeks ago became a PCA church, what they call particularization. And uh, Dr. Forney and his family and many other people, this is where uh, Pastor Carell and Annie and their family worshipped. And uh, they also, some of you went to the Bible conference. Uh, Dr. Forney and that Bible study are the sponsors of this uh, Toledo uh, Bible conference, uh, Great Lakes Bible conference that's held every two years, I think. So anyhow, when I heard Dr. Forney comes down a lot to, to lecture on toxicology, am I right on that? and is down here lecturing this weekend and has his mother and his son, Scott, with him. And uh, so when I heard that, I asked if uh, Dr. Forney would give us the message from the Word tonight. And I'm looking very much forward to having you with us. I welcome you in the name of the Lord. Do you want to use that or this? Uh, six or seven years, I was uh, a little taken aback. <laughs> I think we met last May. Is that is that right? We had lunch at the uh, Union Building, and I've known uh, your brother more than uh, I've known you, although I've known of you. And I knew your father, not personally, but uh, I read him fairly faithfully as a younger person, and. Uh, we used to send lots of people to your brother's church, people that would come to the Bible study looking for a church home. And we did that without really having met, you know, and it was uh, it was really surprising. When we first met uh, David, 
You know, he said, well, uh, we know a lot of people from your Bible study. You know, and I, uh-huh. <laughs> and he didn't really know all the background in that. But uh, anyway, it's a privilege for me to be here. And it's a privilege to share from the Word of God. Let's, uh, let us pray. Father, speak to us from your Word. Protect uh, me from error. Lord, may we hear your truth and may it change our lives. We pray that we might submit to your spirit and that we might, uh, that our hearts might be full of joy and love uh, for each other and especially for your son. We rejoice uh, in our relationship with him uh, through his blood. We pray this in his name. Amen. I, uh, when I was um, a young man, when I took things apart, as boys do, I found that they always break down and the mystery is gone. Um, it looked wonderful until you opened the box and you saw, oh, well, it's only a spring and two levers. And when I uh, was taught by my father to clean a fish, and we took a fish apart, and we looked at its brain and its spinal cord and its inter- internal organs and the way the fins worked and the, the scales, and you looked underneath the scales and you saw the color and you saw that, and then later in biology as I looked in microscopes, as you went from low power to high power to oil immersion to X-ray diffraction to electron the complexity got richer and the mystery deepened. And this is the way God's Word is. And one of the real heartaches of my life is that we are content like flat rocks to skim across the surface. We do this, I think, because we're busy. We do it because we're ignorant. And we do this because we've lost a sense of the aesthetic and the richness and the fullness and I don't come to you tonight as an artist. Uh, I just love the music. <laughs> I tell you, you must, many of you be in the music school, is that right? I mean, you, there's a number of wonderful voices back there, and I was enjoying listening to you. I am not an artist, although I'm an appreciator of artists. This is truth, but it's also art. Please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25. In Psalm 19, you know, where we have the psalm about God's revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day to day utters speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Understand that everything that God makes reveals himself. And then when we come to his word, if that's true of what he makes, how about of what he speaks? Do we appreciate the microscope? Do we look for the aesthetic? Is the mystery, is the the effulgence of his glory present in the word? And I submit to you that it is, and it's only our our impatience and ignorance uh, that keeps us from that. I am not able to plumb the depths of this passage, but I would that we would together rejoice in its glories. It is amazing, the setting. This is the story. uh, Is this the story of Abigail? Or is this the story of Nabal? Or is this the story of David? Or is this the story of Jesus? I had a teacher young in my uh, 
Bible study life who told me when you put on when we study scripture be sure to always put on your Jesus glasses first so that we might understand everything from his perspective this chapter starts and it's a wonderful awful perplexing tremendous juxtaposition of history then Samuel died and we know that there was darkness in Israel as Eli did not discipline his sons and they were Nabal they were fools the name Nabal means fool and Eli was a fool and God judged him and there was darkness and then God spoke to this young boy Samuel and raised up Samuel and there were great revelations and great things and what we learn about that then Samuel died and what happens next what would be the next story that we would read in Holy Writ but the story of Nabal and Abigail this is not an accident this is a story about all fools not just about one fool it's a story about the foolishness of not knowing God it's an incredible story that has rich truth both in its explicit revelation and implicitly in the images and symbols and figures of Christ and of a sovereign God and what he's doing. And let's see if we can open this and see some of this glory. The Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now going down in scripture is always the opposite of going up in scripture. Going up, we go up to Jerusalem. And when we go up to Jerusalem, it's not that we like the pagans believe that the gods live in the mountains. But there is a sense of ascension that the Psalms of ascents, which are rehearsed on the high holy days in Israel, and they're recited as the priest would climb the steps from the pool, and on each step a new Psalm of ascents would be sung. And as we reach the temple and we see that not only are there concentric courtyards going inward to the mercy seat and the place of the Holy of Holies, but there is also, and I think many of we Gentiles don't realize this, an ascension that goes in concentrically until the Holy of Holies is up. And so in Scripture, the symbolism of going up and going to the Lord is very rich. And going down, we think of Jesus who humbled himself and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and goes down. And here we have Samuel dies, there's lament, and David arises and goes down. And he goes down to the wilderness. Okay, David has been anointed king earlier, first Samuel, earlier in 1 Samuel. Samuel anoints him. His older brothers are not to be anointed because God looks on the heart and not as man looks. And then what happens in David's life when he bursts on the scene is not 
the first time he comes on everybody's radar screen is with Goliath. But before that, the king is troubled, and there's a darkness, and he's called for, and David comes, and he, and he sings, and he plays, and whatever. But then he comes, and he visits his brothers, being obedient to his father. His, his own brothers chide him for this. And then the story of Goliath, and with this great act of faith, and the Lord working and showing that uh, God will persevere. And the Goliaths of this world are nothing to Jehovah. And he can use, as, as we learn in the New Testament, in Second Corinthians, that he takes clay pots to show that the transcendent glory belongs to God and not to man. And Paul says, we are these clay pots. We have this treasure in earth, earthen vessels. And so the earthen vessel of this boy, David, defeating this Goliath that had kept the king cowering and all the people thinking that maybe Goliath was Lord rather than Jehovah. We have this story and the result, what is the result of it is the reputation of David goes throughout the land and the women are singing his praises and are saying Saul has killed his thousands but David is ten thousands. Everybody knows about David and because of the Lord David's reputation grows and grows and grows. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. Now we've had Ramah, Wilderness of Paran, Maon, and Carmel. There's an economy in the, whole, in the Holy Spirit, an efficiency of revelation. And these words have, are rich in meaning. We don't have time to unpack each one of them this evening. But, but Maon is a wilderness that is down, and Carmel is a, means vineyard spot, and it's up. And so we have an up and a downness. We have a man who has a vineyard that is up, but he's a man of down, of man. And uh, he's very rich. How rich is he? He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. So let's do an accounting of Nabal. Nabal is very rich. He has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He's shearing his sheep in Carmel, in the vineyard spot, up. And the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And so the man was very rich, and his wife was Abigail. Who is Abigail? Well, we're told she has two characteristics. She is a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. She was pretty, she was beautiful, and she had good understanding. Nabal was rich. Let's put on our Jesus glasses for a minute. Who is Nabal? Who is the fool? Who is the fool today? Well, Nabal, was Nabal a pagan, a heathen? No. The man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Nabal was a Jew. He was from Abraham. He was descended from Abraham. 
not only from Abraham, from Isaac, and from Jacob, not only from Jacob, from Levi, not only from Levi, from Caleb. This man had a rich, godly heritage. But he's a fool. But Abigail had a good understanding. Who is the fool today? Who is the Abigail? In this story, we're going to learn not only about the Reformed faith. This is rich in Reformation theology. But we're also going to learn about how God looks and how we look And we see the beauty and the mystery of many things. The scripture says, The woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in that case, but God has called us to peace. Are there some of us who thought we were marrying Christians, but in fact married Nabal? There in fact seem to be of the family. They seem to be descendant from the family, but they're not. What is the relationship of such a wife to such a a woman? Abigail was beautiful, and she was of good understanding. Do you know what I see when I see women in this situation? They are not beautiful. I see many women letting themselves go. Why did they let themselves go? Is it out of anger at their husbands, or anger at God, or anger at themselves? or preoccupation with something else. And many of these women are not necessarily of good understanding. But Abigail was of good understanding, and she was beautiful. What can the Scripture show us by way of testimony? Psalm 19 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What wisdom can we gather for our own age that is so full of Nabal, as we encounter this. Well, when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel. You see, David was down in the wilderness of Paran. Go up to Carmel. Go to Nabal. I'm reading in verse 5. Greet him in my name. What was David's name? He was anointed by Samuel, but Samuel had died. He was sung in praises by the women of Israel who said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands, referring to the enemies of Israel and the threats and the peace that had been brought by God through David. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. 
Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. This is what David instructs his servants to say. I submit to you that David in this piece is a type of Christ. And he is coming and he's sending his servants. And he's sending them to his people and to Nabal who's a fool. And he's saying, peace be to you. And peace on your house. And he's telling the servants to come and to say, give whatever is ever in your hand. And to do this with the knowledge that we were protecting your sheep. And while we protected your sheep, two things. We did not hurt them, nor was anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. In other words, David's servants didn't take anything nor did they allow any enemies to come in and take anything. And Nabal's prosperity was rooted and grounded in the providence of God, who knew all of his days before there was any one of them, and had put him in this position in Israel. And last of all, he says, Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to these words in the name of David and waited. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away, each from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men whom I do do not know where they're from? Who has done more than Jesus? To whom is the prosperity of the United States of America more dependent than Jesus? Whose name has been greater in the things that he has done? What fool today would say, who is this Jesus? We don't know him. How is it that Nabal can say that he doesn't know David? When everybody knows David. When he killed Goliath and routed the Philistines. And these were just the beginnings of his many victories. And he cut off Goliath's head with Goliath's sword. And he took Goliath's head into Jerusalem and buried it ultimately after displaying it on the wall, showing how great God is defeating enemies, his enemies, and buries it. And I believe that Golgotha, which is the skull, that that skull refers to Goliath. And that Goliath is a type of Satan whose skull would be crushed. In the, in the prophecy in Genesis 3. In the economy of God, when we take his word apart, 
It's like a microscope. It's like looking at a rose and seeing that it's beautiful on the outside. As we take it apart, it becomes more beautiful and more intricate. And there are no accidents and no mistakes. And where is God today in David's life? He's in the wilderness. There's no throne. He's being chased. And now this rich man, Nabal, seems to have not only David's goat, but also Abigail's. Where is this poor woman, Abigail, and how is she subjected to this? Nabal is a fool. Nabal thinks that he's rich by his own hands. Nabal, who himself is liable to hell, is accusing David of being liable to hell. Nabal is mocking the servanthood of David while he enjoys the prosperity of wealth. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on a sword, his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went with David. 200 stayed with the supplies. Who does this Nabal think he is? If God, as David said, God will deliver this uncircumcised Philistine because he defies the armies of the living God. And Nabal defies the armies of the living God anointed in David, displayed by what David has done, proven, even testified to by the women in Israel. What kind of a fool is this? Does he think that David doesn't, can he not know that David doesn't have more than 400 men? That though he may be in the wilderness, that he's anything but a loser... Nabal doesn't know that. Many today don't know that about Jesus. They think of Jesus as one option among many. With Muhammad and Buddha and, you know, several others. It's sort of as though there had never been a demonstration. There had never been a word. They're fools. They think that they're prosper by their own hands. They think that this religion thing is foolishness when they themselves prove the verse that says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Does God call fire down from heaven at this point? No. But before the end of the chapter, Nabal is dead. So what happens? Where is the patience of God? What is, what is going on? So David, David's men, turn on their heels. They go back quickly, these servants, and they tell David. And David calls the army together. He had sent servants. Now here comes the army. We read Revelation. And we see that now is the hour of salvation. And that servants are being sent, even to the vineyard. The church. I fear for the church. It is full of Nabal. 
Now one of the young men came and told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. Verse 15, But the men were very good to us. We were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household. You see, the Bible speaks in households. And these people understand that their household is in jeopardy. Do these servants go to Nabal? They go to Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding. You women, are you Abigail? Are you of lovely appearance and of good understanding? Says the church. Lovely, of good understanding. Or at what point do we become Nabal? Then Abigail made haste. I'm sorry. Let's finish uh, verse 17. For he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. This is the servant speaking of Nabal. I think in the church we have scoundrels. No one can speak to him. What are these servants doing? Are they criticizing an elder? No, they're going to a woman of good understanding. They're saying, look, we're all as lost. They fear David. Nabal doesn't. So Abigail makes haste, took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. You see, Nabal was wealthy. And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. How is a woman to live with a man who is Nabal? So it was, as she rode the donkey, that she went down under the cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down towards her. And so she met them. David and his men are coming down and she's coming down. She's in Mount Carmel. She's coming down. I thought David and his men were down. Shouldn't they be coming up? But the scripture says David and his men were coming down. She was coming down and they met. How did they meet? What is, what is God wrought? What is, what is Jehovah doing here? Now David had said... Surely in vain I have protected all this fellow has in the wilderness. 
so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. He's going to kill all the men. He's going to wipe them out. Now, when Abigail saw David, what does Abigail do? Please, no. Do anything. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt my husband. Hurt my husband. Don't hurt me. What are we going to do? Abigail was a woman of good understanding. What does she do? This is wonderful. Look at what she does. She dismounts quickly from her donkey, fell on her face, and bowed down to the ground. She submits to David. Nabal did not submit to David. She submits to David. She humbles herself. She fell at her feet and she said, On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. She humbles herself and she declares herself to be the guilty party. Well, what's going on here? Certainly this must be some kind of trumped up false humility. Oh, come on. Hey, women... We're going to be equal, right? We're not going to be doormats. We're not going to submit. This is a patriarchal chauvinism of the past, and we reject it out of hand. Women are every good as men. Just look in the church. Look at all the men that won't do anything, and the women that have to come in and fill the prayer meetings and teach the children and do all the things that men aren't. What is this false statement? Do you think it's false? I think she's a woman of good understanding. Could it be that that good understanding means that Abigail herself has a conscience that is tender towards the Lord? What could her sin be? What should have been happening in her household that wasn't? Let's listen to her explain. She explains this to him. Please let me speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For he has, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, here's her confession, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. She did not see the young men whom my Lord had sent. See, this woman took some responsibility for what happened in her household. Now, we're told it was a feast. It was the harvest. This was the time that they got richer. And they were having a feast. And the Old Testament says that when you're having a feast, that you invite the stranger and the neighbor and the poor and the widow and the orphan, and that they are to be entertained and provided for. And she is confessing her inhospitality in that no one less than David's men would have come to Carmel 
and she was unaware of it. I don't know about you, but I think hospitality is a completely lost art. Very few of us are even ashamed at being inhospitable, let alone falling down and confessing that. And yet in the New Testament, we know that some, by giving a cup of water to a stranger, may have entertained angels unaware, and that if we do this to the least of these, we have done it to the Lord. And this is a woman of good understanding who could have spent all of her time, she does mention the scoundrel Nabal, but it's very interesting that she doesn't use Nabal, deserve it as he was, as a scapegoat. But instead, she lays it on herself before David. And then watch this. The next thing she does in this classic intercession of someone submitting to another. Now, therefore, verse 26, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm from my Lord be as Nabal. What? She goes from apparently false humility, which I submit to you is not false humility, but good understanding. Now, who stopped David? She says, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, she says that God has stopped David. Wasn't it Abigail who stopped David? See, Nabal would take everything to himself. He's a fool. Abigail is a woman of good understanding and she sees God's hand in everything. Can we pick up a rose and see God's hand in it? Can we pick up an unlovely person racked by the ravages of sin and abuse and neglect and see God's hand in his workmanship? Are you a woman of good understanding and I a man of understanding? Have we understood the aesthetic and complexity and mysteries of the Son of God and in His revelation where He reveals these things? Yeah, she says, she looks at this and she, she says, God's providence. God did this. What would have had to happen for her to miss David? She could have gone by another way. She could have arrived early. David could have been going up rather than down. They could have taken different paths. Right? And she gets there, and they meet, and she falls on the ground, and she says, forgive me, let the iniquity be to me. You, were, Your servants were here. I didn't know. I'm the mistress of this house. I wanted to come out and give this. I have neglected to be hospitable. And ignorance of your presence is not an excuse. And God has stopped you from taking things in your own hands and committing evil. Well, this, is, this woman is of good understanding. 
She knows her Bible. She knows her Lord. She knows how these things work. And so she says, let your enemies be as those who seek harm from my Lord. What was David's travail? You see, God has this thing. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And when David is leading the armies of God against the enemies of God as the anointed leader of God, he's God's servant. But when David takes his own pride and his own vengeance into his own hands, David becomes a sinner. And Abigail says, David, I sin, forgive me. And God stopped you from sinning. Praise the Lord. She's redirecting David's focus off of Nabal, not onto herself and her beauty, but onto the Lord and his beauty and his providence. But she's sympathetic to the burden of his heart. I fear I'm putting you all to sleep. You said that there was discussion. Does anybody want to interject a comment or thought at this point before I conclude? Or you just hope I hurry and finish? Yes, sir. It meant that he was foolish. That's a very good question. Why would someone name their son Nabal if it meant that they were foolish? What do you think? That's why I'm asking. Okay. What do you think? Do you know what people are naming their children today? It seems that there, there's not an evil so great that it can't become someone's name. No, really. We have a culture that rejoices in evil. Celebrates it. What's this um, insane clown posse? I was listening to an interview and the, uh, these fools, these nables, were saying, I think truthfully, that the greater fool was the corporation, the multinational corporation that published their material after calling it evil. And they said, you know, we don't think our stuff is that bad. They think it's horrible and they continue to publish it after they affirm that it's evil. And they said, and the reason is because they want money. Because they know we sell and they are willing to compromise themselves for we're being, we have integrity here with what we're doing. We don't allege anything any different. Who is really the fool? How, how, and and we, we marvel and we say, well, who would do that? Who would name their son Nabal? And it leads us to ask questions. Well, who was this guy's father? What has happened in Caleb? It's also possible that this was a nickname that he got as a result of his character and that in fact his name may have been something entirely different. Scripture is like that and we don't really know. But what we do know is Samuel was dead we have this wonderful story about foolishness and about the anointed in the wilderness 
and about this woman Abigail, and these are historically accurate and encouraging stories, but they also speak typically of something much deeper, at least at the electron microscope level as far as Scripture is concerned. Is anybody else going to make a comment or a question? Let me hasten to finish. Yes. husband was a scoundrel. Okay, the, question, the, the comment or statement is a respecting wife would not tell an unknown person that her husband was a, was a scoundrel. Do, did I hear would she? Why, why would she? Why would she? Well, I would say first of all this was not an unknown person. She demonstrates that she knows who David is. And I tried to demonstrate before that all Israel knew who David was. And how is it that Nabal doesn't? And I submit to you, how is it that the church today doesn't know who Jesus is? As, as Jesus gets smaller and smaller and smaller, the further we go, how can that be? And we just are puzzled by that. The second thing is, would a respecting wife do this? And I think the question is one of authority here. If Abigail is going to the marketplace and telling the butcher how evil her husband is, that's one thing. If Abigail is going to the Lord's anointed, her king and sovereign, who incidentally, by his kingdom, had ownership on all that Nabal had, by right of monarchy, even though that wasn't under God's economy, for his own use, there still is an authority structure, and we live in a very anti-authoritarian structure. Is it wrong for a godly woman of good understanding to go to her Lord in prayer and humble herself before her Lord and confess her sin to her Lord and then describe her husband to her Lord as a fool if she does so truthfully and accurately. I think we have to understand that David was coming to wipe out her Lord and that he, his life was forfeit and she knew it. This is not to be confused with the idle gossip at the laundromat or the, the, the Kroger, you know, with, as, as wives like to get together and say negative things about their husbands. I praise God, I have a woman who speaks well of me privately and publicly. And most importantly, she speaks well of me to my children. Isn't that right, son? And Scott's back there shaking her head. He, she does. And, and Debbie has many things that she could say to the children that would not be positive. I don't want to dwell on this one aspect rather than to say there's a mystery here and we say, what's going on? Why is this story in Scripture? What, you know, and there's a complexity and there's something about, as modern people go, let's, uh, yeah, let's go to the New Testament. What would Jesus do? You know what I heard last week? What would Jesus drive? Have you seen that new ad? There's a new national campaign. What would Jesus drive? I'm not kidding. And what it is, is a, one of these electric, uh, what do they call them, uh, hybrid vehicles. That's what Jesus would drive. 
No, I'm serious. This is, I don't know, World Council of Churches or some Christian organization is mounting a national campaign. What would Jesus drive? That's what we get when we start selling theology. What would Jesus do? Devoid of any content as to who Jesus is. What would Jesus do is a very good question, but it's not left to the imagination of an ignorant person who doesn't know who Jesus is and then guesses what Jesus would do out of the wild imaginations of, of their hearts instead of a form by Scripture. Well, let me, let me close this because I think you're all going to be sorry that I was invited to speak. And Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. She repeats it. Now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house. Because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord and evil is not found in you throughout your days. What? What? Women, I can confidently say that there's not a man here that would not be thrilled to have a wife, even when we are in our sin and our anger and we're taking to violence in our flesh to venge ourselves or whatever, that has a wife that can intercede with us according to this. She is telling David what God is doing. And what is God doing? Making him a house. Not just a house, an everlasting house. And not only that, that good, not evil, will be found in David throughout his days. How can a woman say this in the middle of a situation where David is coming forward with vengeance in his heart? You can just imagine his frustration as he's been chased by Saul. We go back one chapter. You know, and how he's dealing with Saul and he's discouraged. And we listen to him talking to Jonathan. You see how emotionally he's up and down and up and down. And you say, God has made a mistake in this anointing, this, uh, this person who's so emotional back and forth. You know, and Jonathan is building him up. And here Abigail is building him up and telling him what the Lord has done. How can she say this? Because she knows who the Lord is. You see, the goodness and the surety in her testimony is not found in David or Nabal, but in God. She knows that God's promises are true. She says, God has stopped you. The Lord stopped you from sinning. Do we know that? This is reformed. Who is it that stops us from sinning? Oh, that's something I did. I, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. We listen to people give testimony. It's I, 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 I. I did this. I did this. I did this. I did this. And you say, yeah, but what did God do? If we have good understanding, I submit if we understand the Scriptures and if our minds are transformed, if we have the mind of Christ and if we let the Word of God dwell in our hearts richly, we begin seeing things from His perspective which is just glorious. But it's complex, ambiguous, full of mystery. It's not full of sin. It's full of mystery because that's who God is. 
And then she says something that is just wonderful. And I, you know, I, we need to go on, but I'm going to have to close because of the time. This is just an incredible. I mean, I hope you can see this story. I mean, we just we're really just skimming across the surface even now at this story. Yet a man, verse 29, has risen to pursue you and seek your life. Listen to this. Memorize this verse. Verse 29. Are you discouraged? Oh, this is such wonderful theology. Verse 29. 1 Samuel 25, verse 29. Listen to this. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. Who's that? Saul. But, but, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord, your God. And the lives of your enemies shall be sling out as from a pocket of a sling. Well, what is that? Sling? Sling? Goliath? Sling? David? Sling? And the Lord brings down Goliath. And Abigail says, And your life will be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord God. And your enemies will be slinged out as from the pocket of a sling. It's not only truthful, it's poetic. Isn't that wonderful? My wife whispers encouragement to me. Not because she thinks I'm omnipotent, but because Debbie's God is. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And Abigail sees the good work begun in David. She sees it in the battles of the Lord and the Lord's anointing in David and his victories, starting with Goliath and the sling, and since then. And then she sees it even here as she sees Jehovah stopping David from sinning even if she was involved in that act. And all the while, she's confessing her inhospitality. What a woman. What a woman. What does David do? He falls in love with her. What does the Lord do with the church that sees its sin, even of inhospitality, and recognizes how servants have been left, you know, without entertainment or without provision, and confesses this, even as it says, as the enemies of God seem to be taking all the higher ground. This Nabal was up in Carmel, but as far as Abigail was concerned, and she had good understanding, the Lord reigned. And David's house would endure. And she understood his anxieties and ministered to her, to them.
And then she returns home. It came to pass, and the Lord had done. She, she says, And it shall come to pass, and the Lord has done for my Lord, according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel. Did she know? Yes. See, there she knew. If there's any question if she knew who David was or that she was, he was the anointed ruler or that he had taken the sling and killed Goliath, it's in this passage explicitly. She knew who he was. Why didn't Nabal? Why don't men in the church today know how great the Lord Jesus Christ is? And how, though the Lord come and say, peace to you and peace to your house and peace to your community, that there is an army waiting and the anger of the Lord burns against His enemies. And the wrath of God will be revealed. He says, this, He's going to do this. He's going to make you ruler over Israel. And, thus, and this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause, or that my Lord has avenged Himself. He says, there's no... Listen to this. Are you still away? I'm sorry. I'm, I know it's late. It's Sunday night. It's 7. I've gone on. I'm, please forgive me, but I'm from out of town, and you know this is the last time, Lord willing. You know, but, but just imagine this. You know, what, what does she say to him? Oh, boy, it's so good that you didn't lose your salvation. No! She says, no evil will good throughout your days into eternity. The Lord will establish your house. Those who seek you will be like a sling thrown out. He will establish your house forever. And then in that day, your heart will not be burdened by this sin that God has prevented you from committing. Paul said it like this, 1 Corinthians. No foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. But anybody builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious jewels, wood, hay, and stubble, the day will reveal it. For if a man's works are wood, bay, and stubble, the fire will consume it, but not the man. There is not a question about the faithfulness of God and His establishment of houses, households, this is covenant theology, forever. The question is, what will the conditions of our hearts be in that day? Will we be people to be found with faith who have strived to honor God, who have good understanding about who He is and what He does? as we search the Scriptures, and not just lucky dip and skim across the top, but take Psalm 19 to heart and say, Lord, reveal your truth to me. What is this? What are the deeper things? What are you doing in this age? Where is God? Is God abandoning His church? No. And Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. The contrast between Nabal, who was holding a feast like the feast of the king, and the real king that Nabal, who was subject to, should have been falling at his feet and honoring as king. 
is out in the wilderness. Isn't this wonderful? What an amazing passage. Then Samuel died, and we have this incredible picture. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, that his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Abigail went to him in private and she told him what had happened. She told him that David was coming to wipe them out. She told him that she had gone to David and taken some feast items and had confessed her sin that she had not been aware that David and his men were there. And that she had neglected her duty based on one of God's children, commanded by God. She asked him to forgive it, this sin, and to take. She didn't just say, forgive me. But she then repented of it and brought the stuff that she should have brought had she been more alert. Was she distracted by the party? By the good harvest? Was she busy counting the sheep? that she didn't see these humble servants coming out of the wilderness? What was it in her heart that caused her to neglect this? And she told Nabal about all of this. And then she said, by the way, I, you know, the Lord stopped David from coming and doing this. You know, and she told him this story. Now, is that dishonoring to a husband? I don't think so. His heart died within him and he became like a stone and then ten days later the Lord strikes him dead. When David heard that Nabal was dead he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. David, who would spare Saul's life because he would not touch the Lord's anointed and understood it, was about to take vengeance out on Nabal. And Nabal was nothing. But it was this pent-up emotion and frustration that I think we men understand that all of a sudden we just burst, and sometimes we burst on the most unusual objects. Sometimes even our families or pastors. When in fact the frustration may have been or struggle with evil in some other location. And the wife of good understanding, who knows who God is and what He's doing, can restore us and even understanding our own sin and redirect us to the promises of God and encourage us, even in that which is so frustrating to us, and do that sympathetically as another sinner saved by grace. We have here a picture of Christ in the church. We have here a picture of the husband and the wife who are themselves a picture of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is sent alongside to help and encourage and remind. And here we have Abigail, the Holy Spirit, working with David who's a picture of Christ. And the two become a picture of the church and the Lord and of the family 
in the way things should be operating without navel, but with good understanding and a lovely appearance of wanting to please the Lord. Men, what is your attitude towards women, towards your wives? Nabal didn't know where his real riches were. It wasn't the sheep. It was his wife. And he had been so harsh with her that she wouldn't even intercede with him. Do we value women's input? Women, are you involved, encouraging, helping, or merely criticizing men? Especially those that you love. And all of us, when wrong, do we trust God or do we take the matters into our own hands? And do we see the bigger picture of what God is doing and get excited to be soldiers in His army for His glory? Do you know tonight that you are bound in the bundle of living with the Lord? I pray it so. Amen.